In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Perhaps some of you have heard of the children's author Hans Christian Andersen. Maybe you haven't. He, I think he was at the end of the 19th century. But he wrote a lot of stories for children that were quite successful. And in fact, you may not know Hans Christian Andersen, but you've certainly heard of The Little Mermaid. So that's like one of his stories that was made famous by Disney. There's also The Princess and the Pea, which was made famous as a musical called Once Upon a Mattress. There's The Ugly Duckling, which maybe you heard of that one, or Thumbelina. There's another one called The Nightingale. He has a, a lot of folk tales or children's stories that have inspired ballets, they've inspired musicals, plays, animated films, children's books, etc. And perhaps his most famous story of all is The Emperor's New Clothes, which maybe you remember reading as a child. In The Emperor's New Clothes, inspired also in the animated film The Emperor's New Groove, there are two con artists, right, or swindlers, who arrive at the capital city of an emperor, we don't know his name, who spends lavishly on his clothing and on his fashion. He's kind of obsessed with his own looks. And in fact, he spends so much on his clothes that he uses money that should be used to take care of his people. He kind of is corrupt in that sense. And so these con artists, knowing the, the emperor's obsession with fashion and his obsession with his own appearance, they come to the city and they pose, or they pretend to be weavers, right? famous uh, uh, tailors right? that make clothes. And they offer to supply him with magnificent clothes, right? the best clothes, that are, in, that are invisible to those who are stupid or incompetent. They can only be perceived by the wise, by the knowing, by those with true fashion. And so the emperor hires them. He's an, in, enchanted by their talk. And so these two swindlers set up their looms and they begin to weave, they, and they get to work. And as they're making the, their, the clothes for the emperor, a succession of, of officials and people of the court and the emperor himself, they'll periodically go and visit the tailors and to check on their progress. 
And every time, they would see the loom empty. There was, there was no, no thread, no cloth, no buttons, no nothing. But everyone, including the emperor, would feign knowledge and pretend otherwise, pretend that they, that they did see something there because they didn't want to be thought of as a fool. Each sees that the looms are empty, but pretends otherwise to avoid being thought foolish. Finally, the weavers report that the emperor's suit is finished, the emperor's new clothes. And so these two people even mime, right? They, they, they do a mime. They pretend to dress the emperor in this invisible clothing. And he sets off in a procession through the whole city, completely nude. The court pretends to see that he's dressed. The emperor thinks that he's dressed. The townspeople, in fact, are so uncomfortable with this that they also go along with the pretense. And they all come out in parade and watch the emperor walk by, not wanting to appear foolish, not wanting to appear, appear inept, because they should be seeing these clothes. And then, of course, the climax of the story is that a little child, an innocent boy there in the crowd, points at the, the emperor, this vain, silly emperor, as he's walking stark naked through the streets. And he says, the emperor has no clothes. Right in this moment, so everyone's... The mystique drops and everyone kind of realizes what, what's going on. Of course, it's a very powerful story. It's a foolish portrait of pride, we could say, of vanity. That pride has this amazing way of warping reality, of bending reality to our own desires. Whereas humility, as St. Teresa of Avila says so aptly, is andar la verdad, she says in Spanish, walking in the truth. But here it's even worse because, of course, the emperor in his pride is, has warped reality to his own desires, fed by these con artists. But then everyone remains silent. This is perhaps the great sin of this story. Is that nobody tells the emperor anything. They let him fall. They let him do the ridiculous. And only you know, this farce, this ridiculous situation is of suspended reality, of a false reality, is only resolved, or rather shattered, by the sincere statement of an innocent child who simply points to what's, what's true. There's no clothes. You all are fooling yourselves. Now, of course, we could say the two con artists, right, these swindlers, are the true villains of the story. 
because they've manipulated the emperor to their own end. The emperor is also clearly at fault right, for being so stuck up and so proud, so obsessed with his own appearance. But there's another great villain in this story, we could say. And that's those who lived or worked closely with the emperor and had the opportunity to point out his mistake. He had the opportunity to point out the reality and didn't. And what is this sin? This sin, Lord, as you have told us so often, is silence before the sin of another. This kind of compliance with sin. And this is a sin in and of itself. Tomorrow's readings, the readings for the 23rd Sunday in Ordinary Time, touch upon this idea. In the first reading of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 33, we hear, You, son of man, I have appointed watchmen for the house of Israel. I think, in fact, Harper Lee is inspired in her, her novel, Go Set a Watchman. I think it's from this phrase of Ezekiel. I have appointed watchmen for the house of Israel. When you hear me say anything, you shall warn them for me. If I tell the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade the wicked from his way, the wicked shall die for his guilt, but I will hold you responsible for his death. Israel, also called the Son of Man, Israel is the chosen people. The prophet is invited to point to the sins of the world and call them out and persuade the sinner back to righteousness. I have appointed watchmen for the house of Israel. And then you, Lord, in the New Testament, which we'll read in the Gospel for tomorrow, brings this truth to fruition among your own disciples. You invite them to live fraternal correction. You invite them to live this form of love, which is to speak out before the faults of another. <coughs> Jesus said to his disciples, If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won over your brother. Lord, your message on fraternal correction does not, it doesn't make people sinless. But it does ask us to love one another despite our defects and mistakes. Lord, you're very candid about the sinfulness in us and the fact that we, we each fall, we each struggle, we each have defects, we each have issues that we're dealing with. 
But as Christians, we're called to love one another despite those defects and mistakes. And to help each other to grow. We cannot stand silently by not averting our brother of their mistake. With this teaching of fraternal correction, Jesus invites each of us to be a merciful judge who shows understanding towards anyone who has harmed us in any way. This is from St. Josemaria. To practice fraternal correction, which is so deeply rooted in the gospel, is a proof of supernatural trust and affection. Be thankful for it when you receive it, and don't neglect to praise it with those around you. Sorry, to practice it with those around you. This is, a, we could say, an evangelical practice. Right? Something that Jesus would have practiced with the twelve. In fact, we see several examples of this. The other day, we read about Peter trying to dissuade Jesus from going to Jerusalem and suffering his passion. And so Jesus has to practice a stern fraternal correction with Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are thinking not as God does, but as men do. Lord, you felt the need to correct Peter, to bring him back towards a right way of thinking because he was beginning to to fall away, to deviate. This correction is a form of love. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, right, in privacy, not shaming him before the public. If he listens to you, you have won over your brother. You have brought him back. Because what's the other option? And this is what we see, unfortunately, pervading our society now. Instead of speaking to the person directly about their fault, we talk about their fault to everyone else. We practice gossip. We talk behind people's backs. We complain about people to others. And perhaps, and this is even worse, people publicly shame one another. They take their fault and they publish it. And they seek to, in a sense, oust a person through social media, through perhaps not fake news, but news that was not necessary, that defames the the honor of someone, their reputation. The Holy Father, Pope Francis, stresses how fraternal correction is the Christian way, is the way of love. He says, fraternal correction prevents that bitterness of heart which brings anger and resentment and which leads us to insult or it leads us to insult and aggression. It's terrible to see an insult or taunt issue from the mouth of a Christian. It's, it's an oxymoron. To insult is not Christian. Now perhaps we we don't fall into the sin of insulting openly someone. But what about in our heart? What about in the secret space of our soul? Have we insulted another person with our heart? 
Lord, am I aware of having done this? Critical spirit, rash judgment, jumping to conclusions, harboring resentment. We could say chewing someone out in our heart, desiring revenge. As the Holy Father says, this is not the way of the Christian. Perhaps those officials of the emperor, right, the members of his court, were harboring this, this kind of embarrassment about the emperor. I can't believe he's doing this. He's getting swindled by these con artists. He actually thinks that they're making him close. But instead of intervening and helping this poor, vain emperor, they stand by and watch and are completely complicit in the sin. What is the recipe for a healthy coexistence? St. Josemaria used to speak a lot about las virtudes de la convivencia, the virtues of living together. He emphasized family life a lot because in Opus Dei we live as a family. In our centers we live together as a community. But also the married members of Opus Dei form a, the spirit of the work in their own homes with their wife or their spouses and their children. What are those virtues of living together? What entails a healthy coexistence? A Christian community. We don't discern this very well in the world. When we look out into the world right now, Lord, we see this intolerance for defects. We see a complete lack of mercy towards the errors of others. How does the culture react when someone screws up? When someone makes a mistake? Or when someone doesn't, in a sense, toe the line? There is ousting. There is public shaming. Essentially erasing a person, canceling a person. And so perhaps there is this strong sense of justice, because very often the person has done something unjust and should pay for their mistake. But there's very little sense of mercy. And we, in our Christian convivencia, in our living together, we need to learn to hold these two realities together, hold these two necessities these two obligations of a Christian together, to be both just and merciful at the same time. Because God is justice and mercy. In God, justice and mercy kiss, is the phrase from, from sacred scripture. Love is the coming together of justice and mercy. It's a very mysterious thing. 
Our Lord continues in the Gospel for tomorrow. If he does not listen to you, right, when you correct him, take one or two more along with you, so that every fact may be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Right? Bring together the love of the community to help this person see where they're erring. Right? Give him every chance to come back. Give him every chance to receive forgiveness. Don't reject him. Correct him. Correct him in a loving way. If he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. Right? The, the family of the church will do everything they can to save a soul. Not to leave a soul in error. The poor emperor. The ridiculous situation that pride creates when it's left unchecked. The ridiculous situation that human respects create. Human respects is a phrase that St. Rosemary used often. Respetos humanos. It basically means being overly respectful of another to a fault. Where we, out of a false sense of respect or a false sense of humility, stand by as another person is sinning, or another person is doing something that, that is wrong. There can also be human respects when we hesitate to tell people the truth, when we hesitate to share the good news of the gospel out of a false sense of respect or tolerance. Love is the coming together of justice and mercy. And it is expressed in fraternal correction. Now many of you are preparing for marriage. Right? Many of you are either preparing or are already, already married. Many live family life already, whether that's with your parents or your siblings. Even roommates right, are a, a kind of family community. Wherever a Christian is, family life is, is formed around them. And we want those virtues of living together, those Christian virtues. A healthy family life is building each other up in love, not tearing each other down in contempt. Pope Francis in Amoris Laetitiae where he speaks to married couples, where he speaks to those who are preparing for marriage. But it can apply to anyone living within a family. Another great challenge of marriage preparation is to help couples realize that marriage is not something that happens once and for all. Marriage isn't just the, the wedding. It's not simply the day of the wedding. Although that's often what we remember. That's often what is sort of publicly celebrated. Their union is real and irrevocable, confirmed and consecrated by the sacrament of matrimony. Yet in joining their lives, the spouses assume an active and creative role in a lifelong project. Their gaze now has to be directed to the future 
that with the help of God's grace, they are daily called to build. For this very reason, neither spouse can expect the other to be perfect. Each must set aside all illusions and accept the other as he or she actually is, an unfinished product needing to grow, a work in progress. In our family life, whether that be our siblings, our roommates, our siblings, our parents, do we see a work in progress? A garden of plants that we want to grow, to flourish, to improve? Or are we harsh and only expect finished products? Do we perhaps raise the bar so much with a person that it's impossible for them to meet it? He continues, a persistently critical attitude towards one's partner, and we can say whoever we're living with, is a sign that marriage was not entered into as a project to be worked on together with patience, understanding, tolerance, and generosity. Slowly but surely, love will then give way to constant questioning and criticism, dwelling on each other's good and bad points, issuing ultimatums, engaging in competition and self-justification. The couple then prove incapable of helping one another to build a mature union. This fact needs to be realistically presented to newly married couples from the outset so that they can grasp that the wedding is just the beginning. It's just the first step. By saying, I do, by exchanging those vows, they embark on a journey that requires them to overcome all obstacles standing in their way, sorry, standing in the way of their reaching the goal. The blessing that they receive in the sacrament is a grace and an incentive for this journey. They can only benefit from sitting down and talking to one another about how concretely they plan to achieve their goal. Right, this communication, this healthy communication of talking through the things that we see by helping each other with correction, by helping each other with encouragement, not falling into criticism, not falling into backbiting, this raises another question. Are we open to receiving correction? It's not simply about giving correction to those around us, but receiving correction from them. And in fact, desiring correction. Desiring that we be told where we need to change. Because if those around us are unfinished products, we'll go figure. We are, simply an, we are clearly an unfinished product with a lot of space for growth. Do we have the humility, the self-knowledge, the simplicity to welcome suggestions from other people and even to ask for them? You know, St. Josemaria introduced fraternal correction in the work. Right? So this is a, a standard kind of practice for members of Opus Dei. 
is to live for eternal correction. And he established this as kind of part of the culture that we live in the centers. But when he brought this to the Holy See to get approval for Opus Dei, they said, that's fine, but you can't be corrected. And he said, what do you mean? I need, I need fraternal correction too. This is from Don Alvaro in his memories. St. Rosemary was very thankful for the corrections that he received, and precisely for this reason, he engaged in a filial tussle with the Holy See to ensure that the President General of Opus Dei, as the prelate was then called, would not be deprived of fraternal correction, which in Opus Dei is a fundamental means of formation. When he first presented our particular law, he had to overcome misgivings concerning this aspect of it. They reminded him, for one thing, that according to centuries-old tradition, major superiors could not be corrected by their subjects. But our founder would not give in because he did not want to be deprived of this great help. He said, this just isn't fair. All my sons and daughters have this means of improvement that is rooted in the gospel. In other words, all of these, these others have this marvelous means of sanctification. Should I, who am a poor man, and those who will succeed me, not have this means of sanctification? And so finally, they established this, this uh, role within the work of two priests that live with the Father. They're called the custodes. And help him by, by means of whatever suggestions they consider appropriate. But they're there to support him with fraternal correction. Do we have the same desire, Lord, that there are people by our side that aren't, that aren't afraid to tell us that like it is? <clears throat> to speak straight, to guide us when we, when we begin to err. When I was in, in Rome, I had to learn both Italian and Spanish, and I really wanted to get my Spanish good because I was going to be using it a lot. And so I actually assigned two people that lived with me. One was Nico, who's now a priest in Madrid, and Jose, who's a layman in Mexico, I asked them both to be like my watchdogs. Right? To, every time I make a mistake, a gr grammatical mistake or a mistake in pronunciation, to interrupt the conversation, right? just point it out right away. And it was annoying. It was actually really annoying. <laughs> but within the span of a year, right, a lot of the mistakes that I was making, I wasn't making anymore because they had pointed them out and kept me from forming bad habits. Let us be simple. Let us be welcome to the corrections that we're given. And not be afraid to say things. If, we, if we're sitting at the dinner table and someone has a crumb on their lip, well, don't let them go through the meal like that. Just point out, hey, that's an act of charity. We conclude asking Our Lady that she help us to grow in this evangelical counsel, right? this evangelical advice, this clear teaching of Jesus Christ. She was always looking out for the needs of others. And she was not afraid to avert when there was a problem. A great example of this is the wedding feast at Cana, where clearly somebody messed up. 
because there wasn't enough wine. She doesn't hesitate to point this out. She goes to her son and says, they have no wine. And then between the two of them, they fix the problem. And they save face, as it were, for that, that couple who is celebrating their marriage. Mother Mary, help us to be simple, help us to be humble, and to live these virtues of living together through fraternal correction. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations that you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.